Well, can I welcome you? My name is Paul Rees, and I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Charlotte Chapel. As we've already heard uh, today, that uh, this week there's been a conference going on. I just thought I'd show you a picture of what they looked back in 1910 in the Assembly Hall. Fine bunch of folk there. And they had this great rallying phrase, uh, which was the evangelization of the world in this generation, which spurred much fresh mission initiatives. And so I think it's uh, God's providence that uh, we happen to come along to Exodus chapter 18 uh, this morning. If this is your first Sunday with us, let me explain that we've just been working through this Old Testament book uh, since March. And this morning, we're on to Exodus chapter 18. And you'll find that in the Church Bible on page 75. Page 75 in the Red Church Bibles. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the desert where he was encamped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I Your father-in-law Jethro am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. 
The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on the way, on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. This is God's word. Well, we've been looking since March about how an ancient people group, the descendants of a man called Abraham, became slaves in Egypt, and then how they gained their freedom and made their exit out of Egypt in remarkable circumstances. And if you're fairly new to Christianity, you might well be saying to yourself, well, this is all very quaint that I've met such an unusual group of people who gather to observe such strange things. Why on earth do you spend time on a Sunday morning doing that? And the answer is this. These events reveal God to us. The same God that is the God who controls the heavens, the God who controls your heartbeat. This is why we're doing this, because it reveals God to us. Hollywood had a crack most recently at these events of the Exodus about 10 years ago in an animated movie called The Prince of Egypt. And uh, if you ever had the joy of watching that movie, uh, you'll see that basically the storyline that they've presented from Hollywood is that this is the triumph of the human spirit, the way they portrayed the story. And of course, that is just Hollywood rubbish. As we've been reading through Exodus, we've been seeing the central character here is not uh, human beings, but God. God is the central character. God is the one who has been uh, bringing about his purposes uh, in, in fulfillment of his ancient promises. God is being revealed to us through these events. And so when Moses commanded Pharaoh to let uh, the people go, and Pharaoh's reply was, who, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? In a sense, God's answer was, well, you watch. I'll let you know who I am, Pharaoh. And in chapter 6, the Lord says this, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. See, who's the hero in the story? It's God, isn't it? God's going to do it. I will do this, he says, and that's exactly what God did. And we charted through uh, the progress of how God brought those uh, terrible plagues, terrible judgments on Israel. In a sense, each one marking how he was a God who was superior to all the gods of Egypt. 
And it resulted and culminated in the final tenth plague that that ended up humbling Pharaoh and uh, causing him to let the slave labor go. Well, you might be sitting here again and saying, well, that's all very interesting. Uh, You know, you still seem a rather quaint bunch to me to be spending such time looking at these matters. I mean, what's, what's God's dealing with this ancient people have to do with me today in 21st century Edinburgh? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to seek to answer it now. Because what we've got as we come to chapter 17 and 18, uh, the, the, under God's supervision, uh, the, the person who finally compiled this book, Moses who wrote most of it, but Moses is dead by the end. So, um, well, he's not, is he dead by the end? No, he's not dead by the end of this, but who compiled the, 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 the Pentateuch together. He caused that these two chapters should be put side by side before we come to the great awesome point of Sinai. And we've got two people groups who are uh, not from descendants of Abraham, confronting the people of God who've been redeemed out of Israel. And what we have here, I think, the writer wants to see that the events of the Exodus have universal significance. They have an impact, an impact for the rest of the world, for the rest of the nations. We have back in chapter 17, um, Amalek and his army uh, coming out to face them. And in the chapter 18, we have Jethro from Midian. And uh, I think the writer, inspired by God, wants to know that these events matter to the rest of the world, and therefore they matter to us. These are not just the events of some local, sort of tribal deity. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And although he chose to redeem a particular people, his purpose have always been worldwide in their scope. So the first response that we looked at last week, that Liam Garvey uh, enabled us to uh, consider last week, was the response of war. Look at chapter 17 and verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So Amalek represents, I guess, the world that is, that is hostile to God and hostile to God's people. Uh, and this ancient hostility to God's redeemed people really has been one that has been mirrored down through the centuries, even up today to the Christian church, where many people suffer in different nations because they are the people of God. One of the responses of the world to to God's plan of salvation in the world has been hostility to war against God's people, to seek to put down the gospel in very brutal ways. But we saw that to oppose God's people is is to oppose God, which in the long run is never a wise decision. So look at the end of chapter 17, verse 16, the pronouncement of God, his judgment The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation, Moses said. And verse 14 is what the Lord says. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So here's one response to the people of God. And we've seen the soberness of, uh, and the foolishness of, of opposing God. That those who persist in doing that will ultimately be blotted out, wiped out, the scriptures say. But that's not the only response to God's redeemed people. We turn to chapter 18, 18 verse 1. And there we're introduced to Jethro, 
Jethro, the priest of Midian. So what have we got here? We've got a man who's a pagan priest, a worshiper of, of false gods. And yet by the end of this section, we have a man who's brought to a new set of convictions in his life. Look at verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Now I know, says this pagan priest, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For his life up to this point, he had really been one where he, he had focused on the worship of a different god or even multiple gods. We don't know what the, the Midianite faith was, really. He was a, a leader, representative of a false faith. But things changed. Now he knew that the God of Israel was greater than all other gods. Now I think when any person becomes a believer, a Christian believer, it is a miracle of God's grace. But I do think that there's something particularly wonderful about an older person coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a humbling thing, isn't it, to look back on a long life and say, I was wrong. What, what I believed about God, what I believed about life was not right. There's, there is someone who deserves my worship and an obedience far greater than the lesser idol that I've been focused on all my life. It takes great humility to do that, doesn't it? Especially if you're one of the leaders of that. Extraordinary. And uh, I think what we have here is the conversion of a pagan priest to recognize the true and living God. And, and this, this new conviction caused him not only to praise God, as it says in verse 11, but also to worship, uh, verse 12, through burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. And, and he enters into a fellowship meal with God's people in God's presence. I think we are undoubtedly talking about conversion. And so the question today is, what brought about this extraordinary conversion? What, what brought this amazing event about? And I think it's worth investigating that this morning, uh, especially in the light of uh, this anniversary of a missions conference. Um, whether you're here, someone who is uh, looking into the Christian faith, uh, or for us who are concerned about our friends and family who are still not Christians, it's important to see, well, how did this change come about? And the simple answer is that he knew someone with a living testimony to God. He met someone with a living testimony to God. Now we've already observed as we've worked through Exodus that Moses was far from kind of the, the perfect individual. He, he, he had his flaws. He had his weaknesses. But these verses do present us with some great characteristics of Moses and chief amongst them I think is this that he was a man who wanted his life to be clearly pointing to the God that he worshipped he wanted to be a clear witness to God and we see that in his sons in verses 3 and 4 he didn't just pick uh, his children's names because he liked the sound of them uh, these names were a way that those who knew these lads were reminded of Moses' faith how many times in his long life would he have had a conversation like this? Well, have you got any children, Moses? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got two boys. Oh, what's their names? Verse 3, Gershom. 
which means I've become an alien in a foreign land. Now Moses spent 40 years in Egypt. He spent 40 years living in Midian. That's a long time, isn't it? Where's your home, Moses? Well, have you met my boy Gershom? See, whether he was living um, in Midian or in Egypt, Moses knew that his homeland was actually located in God's promises. In the land that promised, was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses was a man of faith who spent his life living in a foreign land. Do you know, he, he only got to see the promised land. He never got to enter the promised land before he died. He spent his whole life kind of being an alien from the land that God had promised. Now, Shona and I have actually spent time living in America where we had the status of being called legal aliens. It was always sobering to see that line, this is the cue for legal aliens. Like that, you walk in there. But the truth is, if you've never left these shores and you're a Christian, then you're a legal alien. You're an alien because your homeland is not here. It's not Edinburgh. It's not this world. Uh, we are just traveling through. Uh, Jesus has gone before us. He, he's promised to prepare a place for us. And we live as people who live for that heavenly gathering. We're living as people who belong to a different country. Well, Moses, you know, how did you keep going all through those difficult years? Ah, well, have you met my second son? Verse 4, Eliezer, God is my helper. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Do you get it? That the, the, the names of these boys were living monuments to, to Moses' experience, to Moses' faith and his hope in God. But it didn't just end with his sons, did it? Moses was a living testimony in his speech in verse 8. Um, family gatherings can always sometimes, well, they can sometimes be a bit awkward, can't they? My mum and dad are here. It's not remotely awkward. We love having them. I should say that. Not with my family, but I've heard some people say that when you get together with family, it can be a little bit awkward. You know, particularly if, you know, your family is Christian, but your, your parents are not Christian. Well, imagine the awkwardness of when your father-in-law is a pagan priest. Let me look after the boys. What's he going to do? It can be a bit awkward, can't it? And... Uh, if you've ever gone into those meetings with some trepidation, some big long holiday where you're spending time with the family and not wondering what's going to go on, I think we can learn a lot from Moses. Tricky situation, but look how he deals with his father-in-law. Verse 7 tells us that he went out to meet his father-in-law. Now Moses was a big man. Moses was the leader of a nation. If you're the big man, you sit in the tent and guys come into you. But look at the respect he shows. He goes out of the tent to meet his father-in-law. And he, the big man, bows down and kisses his father-in-law. Well, what respect, what love, what tenderness. I think we just need to be reminded here of, of, of this simple thing, isn't it? Uh, that that, that uh, the way that we often gain a hearing is the way that we show our love and respect for others. And Moses did that to his father-in-law. I'm not saying you have to go down and kiss the feet of your father-in-law, but you know whatever works in a contemporary way for you to show hospitality. But Moses gets him in the tent, and then Moses speaks to him and tells him of all God had done. 
And, and here's, here's the simple truth. That, 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 that it is as we speak of what God has done, that that has the power to convert pagans into worshippers of the true God. People of whatever nationality will come to knowledge of God by hearing about what God has done. Let me remind you of the words from Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how, they, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If people are going to come to know about God, they need to meet people who will open their mouths and witness to what God has done. It all is saving acts. Now, I think we often fail to speak about God for a number of reasons. And one of them is that society implies to us that it's, it's our personal faith, and uh, it's all well and good for us, but we need to just keep it privately to ourselves. Don't impose your faith on other people. That's the line, isn't it? But look at the good news that Moses shares. Verse 8, he shares everything that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Firstly, Moses shares about God's mighty acts of redemption in Egypt. Now, that's not an imposition. It is sharing historical facts. When people listen to the 10 o'clock news, they don't think they're being imposed upon, do they? Why are you telling me all this news? You're imposing this news upon me. No, 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 no. no. We, we actually want to hear what has objectively happened. We want to be informed. We want to, we want to know. And this is the essence of Christian evangelism, sharing the good news of what God has done in history through the life and death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are simply sharing objective historical facts. There's nothing that's about imposition in that. And these Exodus events really, uh, as we've been seeing week after week, are historical pictures of the far greater redemption, the far greater salvation that Jesus would bring about in his death upon the cross. And that's why we as Christians, we're not pointing back to these Exodus events. We're pointing back to God's redemption of us at the cross of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most important part of our testimony is to point people to the objective truth of the gospel. I mean, it's wonderful about how you know, good it felt for you and changed you, but actually what we really want to know is what, are you t- what, what is the essence of it, the objective truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the news that will actually save people. And the first part of Moses' testimony is simply to tell them that. But then he goes on to speak about his suffering. Look again at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. For a number of weeks now, we've been considering as a church the curious guidance of God. God was clearly guiding them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. It was, it was, it was not hard to miss which way God wanted them to go. And yet God took them off into places of deprivation, to places of thirst, to places of hunger, to places of danger. And we've been thinking, well, why is that? And here's one more crucial answer uh, that that, that we can put into the mix of why God at times puts us through difficult circumstances. And it is this. Our difficult circumstances can be the very arena that establishes a testimony to God 
in the world. The very way that that God can be clearly seen to preserve, sustain, and deliver us can be a powerful testimony to the world around us. God can lead us into these difficult places so that others can see the difference that he makes in our lives. Our lives can be bright lights in a dark place that shine out the gospel of hope, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that was the nature of Moses' testimony. He told his father all the hardships they'd been through and how the Lord had delivered them through them. Now, is there something about the way we handle our difficulties, I guess, that that point to Christ? I don't know whether you have been reading the updates from uh, Morag Leach about Ian's uh, health progress. It's good that he's out of uh, intensive care. That was good news. But it's been interesting just to read some of those reports and to see the ways that they've been seeking to be a witness to the Lord and to the gospel, even as Ian has been in a critical health condition. And I've no doubt that this has been a great testimony to those around them. And they've been quite deliberate about this. They they want their lives to be a, a shining testimony to the Lord Jesus, whatever happens to Ian in the long term. And look at Jethro's response, verse 9, to all this news. Jethro was delighted. Apparently the, the Hebrew word of that is, is hard to express. It's, it's total thrill, total delight. Del- he was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Seeing sharing the good news of salvation is actually news that brings great joy. Great joy when people get it. Here, here is a message that can make the nations who receive it glad. And that's why Christians have kept sharing it, even in the face of great hostility. Here's Jethro, the, the formerly pagan priest from Midian, bursting into praise and, and blessing God. Verse 10. He said, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. It was a simple logical deduction, wasn't it? As he heard about how God had conquered all the the gods of Egypt, how each of the the plagues had showed his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. Uh, Jethro says, okay, well, he also therefore must be greater than the gods I worship in Midian. And really when we've come to understand the gospel, this is is what we've come to understand, isn't it? About uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he's greater than all other gods. This is the, the impulse that sends us out into the nations. We know the one true living God who is greater than all other gods. We don't go out with a message, actually the God you've been worshipping, you've just got the wrong name. Let me tell you the right name. No, actually you've been worshipping false gods. You need to know the true and living God. The God who is greater than all other gods. The God who is greater in in faithfulness. The God who is greater in power. The God who is greater in grace and mercy and love. Greater than all other false gods, all other false philosophies, all other false ideologies. Come to know the greatness and glory of this God. That's why we head out with good news to proclaim. Now, Do conversions happen like this today? Do we have uh, news that can make pagan priests rejoice in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, a few years ago, I spoke with an administrator uh, from Highfields Free Church in Cardiff where Sharon and I 
uh, were, were, were part of that church for a time. And she was telling me about a young man called Talisin. Talisin was homeless uh, when he was met by the church secretary uh, on a uh, Christian soup run in Cardiff. He was a pagan priest. He was brought up in a coven in Birmingham and part of a pagan group in Cardiff. And he started to taunt her. He said, if your God is powerful, he could get me a job and a place to live in by the end of the week. But he doesn't exist, so it's pointless asking. And she replied, my God is powerful. And I will pray for you. Well, by the end of the week, much to his surprise, he had a job and an apartment to live in. And so on the next Sunday, he walked into Highfields Church for the first time. And what amazed him was the welcome he received there and the number of people who gave him things for his new apartment. And when Christianity Explored was offered, he thought he'd better check it out. Now, the guy who ran that course told me that the first two weeks, he was very disruptive, very difficult. But then his twin brother died. And at the pagan funeral, uh, he suddenly realized that he had no confidence whether his brother or he would be safe on the other side of death. And so he returned to Cardiff and, and, and to the course with much greater commitment to understand the Christian faith. And a few weeks later after that, he turned up at church and declared to everyone that he'd become a Christian. And they said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I know that I love Jesus because he's taken away my sins. And he's had to face considerable opposition from his old pagan friends. He, he gave up his clairvoyancy, which is how he was making his money to become a regular at the church. And uh, what he's discovered is that the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is greater than all other gods. Now, how do these amazing events come about? Well, the church secretary opened her mouth and encouraged to start speaking about the good news of Jesus. That's how it began. And what are the signs of true conversion? It would be helpful to know this, wouldn't it? So we can check ourselves to see if it's a true work of God in our own lives. Well, we've, we've observed Jethro's joy, his, his worship, and his praise of God's exclusive place. But you see further signs of his conversion in verses 13 to 27. And that's in the way that he immediately starts serving the people of God. And he does that with his wisdom. Uh, some Christians uh, go to church to worship God and... Uh, and then they kind of head out, and that's about it. But this man, Jethro, worked out that he had been blessed by God in order to be a blessing to others. No sooner does he, does he uh, become part of the people of God, he starts serving them with his, with his wisdom. And I guess Moses really hadn't had a lot of time to think about how you uh, lead such a large group of people heading out of Egypt. They'd gone from one crisis to another. And as often happens, when pressures and deadlines kind of keep crashing in, uh, you find yourself in a non-stop leadership crisis situation of Herculean proportions. And this is where he was at. Uh, anyone knows this, that uh, it's always easier in the short term to do the job yourself, isn't it? It's a bother to train other people to do it. But that's a very short-term philosophy. And Jethro, coming in fresh from the outside, sees clearly what needs to be done, and so he tells Moses. And it clearly strikes a chord, because verse 24, by the time he's finished his lecture, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. There was no arguing, he just, that's great. Yes, we're going to do it. Now, it's, it's not rocket science, the advice. 
All you have to do, Mount Jethro says, is shorten the distance between the problem and the person who can do something about it. That's his principle, really. Um, Jethro is astonished. Uh, He realizes straight away that this is too much burden for one man to take. The responsibility to judge all the Israelites alone. And uh, the backlog in court cases is nothing new, my my judicial friends here. It's been going for a long time, hasn't it? Um, And it's too much for one man. And it's interesting... Jethro is not super spiritual. He knows all about God's amazing provision, but he doesn't say, well, I will ask God, and he'll give you supernatural energy, Moses, to work through the night. He doesn't do that. He gives a very practical advice. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Now, um, we know that there's huge temptations in leadership, aren't there, as we've seen by the recent scandal of the MPs in the last parliament. And, and, and yet, so he, sa- he sends them out, send out, find people who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Find godly men and put them in groups over the people. Now, the same wisdom is needed in any church today, isn't it? No pastor is able uh, or should ever consider being the only one who takes leadership, uh, the leadership load of a congregation. God raises up godly elders, uh, men who fear him, men who are trustworthy, Uh, who are not in it for the money, who are able to teach others the gospel. And if you're a Christian here today and have been blessed through this congregation, then here's my question to you. How are you, in turn, blessing this congregation? How are you serving the people of God here? If God has blessed you here, how are you seeking to be a blessing to others? Have you got IT skills? We could use those. Could you help assisting teaching God's word in to the young people? Could you get involved in the international fellowship? Uh, there are so many ways, so many opportunities for serving here in this fellowship. And next Sunday, we're going to be considering the topic of biblical eldership ahead of our process to appoint elders for the next five years. And we have to say it is a noble task to desire to be an elder, to be an overseer. Uh, to, to, to the men, I want to say to you, to challenge you, well, what would need to change in your life in order for you to be considered for that role as an elder? Because we're looking for elders in our congregation. But more of that next week. But the list of verse 21 and 22 give us a good start, don't they? Capable men, men who fear God. We need people who fear God rather than fear men. Because guess what? As a leadership, you make decisions that don't make everybody happy. I don't care which church you go to. You're never going to make a decision that's going to make everybody happy. And so it's more important that you fear God than fear men. You need trustworthy men, men who hate dishonest gain, wise men who know God's word so they can teach and wisely discern the matters brought to them. Now, you could take that as the main application of this section, but I, I I want to finish elsewhere this morning. Look at verse 19. You see the summary that Jethro makes of, of Moses' role. This is, what, this is what Moses does. He represents the people before God. And verse 20, he passes on from God to the people the instructions of how to live. And in a sense, Moses' role is a very unique one. He is the mediator between God and men. And in the New Testament, the parallel for such a role is linked to only one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to finish off this morning by looking at the greater glory of Jesus. Greater than Moses. See, in both sides of this mediatorial role, Moses is shown to be weak. 
in representing the people to God. We saw last week, didn't we, in the battle with Amalek, that as he has had his hands raised up, the victory was won. As his hands dropped, they were, they were failing. And, and yet he wasn't able to keep his hands up. He, he got tired. He needed helpers to support him. He was inadequate for the task. And then this week, as we see in Exodus 18, in his role as judge, instructing the people of how to live, he is weak. He can't do it on his own. The burden is too great. He needs helpers to come alongside. But you see, this is what the people of God need, a mediator who can represent them to God and who can fully communicate and teach the truth of God to us. And in both these ways, Jesus has greater glory. See, we need no other revelation from God than Jesus. As Hebrew 1 tell us, tells us, he's the son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And there's no other intercessor, mediator between us and God than Jesus. As it says in 1 Timothy 2, uh, he, he urges people to pray for all people because uh, this is something that's good and pleasing to God who, verse 4, wants all men to be saved. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Again, this is, this is what motivates us to go out with the good news. There is only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Salvation is found in, in no one else, for there is no other name given to, under heaven given to men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ alone. The greatest thing that we can do to this world, and we're called to do good to the world, and so we're involved in, in, in projects to give clean water, to provide good medical care, to provide all these sort of things. We head out as the people of God, engage in all these ways. But the greatest way we can help this world is to open our mouths and speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. To speak of this amazing plan of salvation that God has achieved through Christ and through Christ alone. And yes, some will war against us. But you know, others will come and join in worship and in loving service of God's people. Jesus is the news that alone can make peoples of the earth rejoice. And that's why we do it. That's why we can do it this very week. Let's seek his grace now.